Hello and welcome to the Lancet Digital Health Podcast. I am Rupa Sarkar, the Editor-in-Chief of the journal. And I am Diana Samuel, Senior Editor of the journal. We are absolutely delighted to be here recording our 13th podcast for the Lancet Digital Health in unfortunately slightly unusual circumstances. Um, The Lancet offices have been closed for four weeks now, is that right, Diana? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm counting. (laughs) So we are currently on video call whilst we record this and we haven't seen each other in a while but regardless time continues and we have reached a milestone of our first anniversary and like all birthdays we use the opportunity to reflect a little on the past year. So in this month's editorial we decided to highlight some of the work published in the journal and the meaningful impact this has had so please do have a read of it when you have a chance. In the meantime given the current situation We felt we needed a little cheering up and some human contact. So we had the honor of catching up with a few of our International Advisory Board members, or IAB members for short, to reflect on the major digital advances that have transformed medicine and healthcare over the past year, as well as a look at some of the problems that still need to be addressed in the future, including the ethical and policy challenges that lie ahead. Um, And in addition to a discussion about the challenges, there was no avoiding the biggest challenge humanity is currently facing, that is coronavirus, and a number of our board members tackled coronavirus head-on in highlighting the role digital health has in the current pandemic. We are incredibly grateful to our board members, not just those interviewed in this podcast, but all 28 experts who have generously, over the year, shared unique insights into their fields of research and key developments that have supported our efforts in the journal. We want to thank them all for their time and also thank them as many of them are on the front line of the COVID pandemic in their countries, whether that is treating patients or advising their governments. So first we go to Dr. Leo Selly. He's in the US. He's a clinical research director and principal research scientist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he gives us a bit of insight into his global work during the current COVID-19 pandemic. Given you have practiced medicine in three continents and you have a broad global perspective in healthcare delivery, what would you say are the differences in applying technology to mitigate the current COVID-19 pandemic across different regions? Well, I would say that there is actually more similarity rather than differences. Uh, people always assume that technology plays a big role in um, the response to disasters like the pandemic now. But for the most part, Uh, The bigger issues are the typical health systems issues that we're seeing. Um, And we have been talking to our partners from around the world, trying to uh, really improve some of the technological tools that they could use for testing as well as for treatment. But for the most part, what we're seeing is really a unified, systematic, uh, traditional approach to this type of situations. Um, We keep discussing about uh, the use of or the the mass manufacturing of ventilators. We have been discussing about uh, increasing or ramping up the production of uh, PPE as well as the uh, production of a vaccine. But we feel that really our best chance of overcoming this pandemic or curbing its impact 
is learning together and sharing information. We feel that we have to understand this virus and how it behaves in the community and how it affects the human body. And we cannot do that if we continue with our outdated approach to research, doing things on our own, performing them in, in silos. So we feel that this is a good opportunity to really promote open science and use the tools that we have to uh, assist with the uh, sharing of information, uh, assist with the collaborative learning. Thank you for that. And Speaking of open science, you're involved in developing open platforms and promoting data sharing across regions and institutes. You've sort of touched on how important you think this is, but um, what do you think in, in actual practice is going to happen when we share data and how is this going to help overcome the current pandemic? Um, there is a big concern now that whatever gains that we've had with open science, whatever gains that we've had in using data to reduce medical errors, to reduce health disparities, uh, are actually gonna be lost during this, this pandemic. Um, as health systems are being strained, uh, healthcare workers are exhausted, we feel that some of the mistakes that we have been trying to correct um, in the past will be coming back and will be haunting us. And this is the reason why what we're really uh, using or doing is for this is an opportunity to even more uh, strongly advocate for the tools that we have been promoting for advancing open science. Uh, we would like to uh, use data science to uh, interrogate the way we deliver care in making sure that health disparities are mitigated as we offer tests and treatments across populations. And in the way we perform research, we also will try to uh, reduce the underrepresentation of certain groups of women, of minority populations, of people from poor countries. Uh, for decades, uh, these groups have been underrepresented really in the generation of medical knowledge. And we feel that data science with its tools can actually try to uh, mitigate those uh, problems that we've had in the past. Mm, interesting to hear Leo talk about the need to make data sets open in the fight against infectious diseases like COVID-19 and how important this is in reducing health disparities in underrepresented populations. Yes, this is a huge problem under normal circumstances. And as we've just heard, the increase in health disparities risk being exacerbated due to the coronavirus pandemic. And I think having spoken to our next guest, we might learn a lot about how to mitigate these issues from our global health colleagues. So I spoke with Professor Andrea Winkler, a neurologist and co-director of the Center for Global Health at the Technical University of Munich in Germany. She's also the director of the Center for Global Health at the University of Oslo, Norway. So Andrea, you have over 18 years of experience in clinical work and research in countries of sub-Saharan Africa. Can you tell us of the impact of digital technologies in supporting research in these areas? Well, thanks a lot, Rupa, for inviting me to this podcast. And in this podcast, really, I would like to focus on digital health platforms in low and middle income countries, because that is a bit where my, where my own experience lies. 
So I have two cases that I would very quickly like to introduce to our audience. So, so one is a digital health promotion platform uh, from Tanzania dealing with HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, and tineosolium, which is the pork tapeworm, and which is a classical one health disease. That means that human, animal, and environmental health together is important for that disease. They are highly prevalent, those three diseases, uh, of course, throughout Sub-Saharan Africa and other regions. So what we do in this project is uh, it is a research and innovation project. First of all, we connect people. We connect villages and rural areas that so far are unconnected. And then together and led by our local partners, we establish info spots, which are free, open access, and where people can actually get um, access to health information regarding the three diseases. And my second case study, or where I have uh, a bit of experience, is collaboration with District Health Information System 2, short DIHS2, which is the world's largest health management information system, and it's active in over 80 countries, mainly low- and middle-income countries. It comes out of the Department of Informatics at the University of Oslo in Norway, it's been running since 1995, not exactly that version, but a precursor of that version. And it is a free open source digital platform, which was actually built to relieve poverty and to serve uh, the unserved. Um, so far, it has really been adopted by national governments and beyond. Um, and it, uh, its main uh, area is health data management and analysis at different levels, uh, up to the national level, um, health program monitoring, healthcare facility, registering, surveillance of disease outbreak, and I will finish with a COVID-19 note, and patient tracking. You mentioned there are open platforms, and these have a lot of advantages, but what are the challenges facing implementation of these technologies in sub-Saharan Africa? Yeah, thanks, Ruth. But just again, I mean, the, the advantages or the advances regarding those platforms is also, if I may quickly um, add to that one, that there's a, there's a change in mindset, which is really great. And that means that also governments in low and middle income countries, they resort more and more to digital public goods, which is, um, it's accessible to everyone, it's free. Um, and basically, it can be downloaded, um, and, and that, that is something that governments these days resort to. And this is also how DIHS2 works, and of course, other health platforms. And we have an enormous uptake of mobile phones in sub-Saharan Africa especially. Uh, and there are other te technological advances that I will not dwell on. The limitations regarding those platforms, there are bad connectivity in many rural, especially rural areas of sub-Saharan Africa and other low- and middle-income countries. Lack of power. There's a digital divide which is really pronounced and with which we need to bridge between male and female, young, old, and urban, rural. We have limited content in local languages. We have low quality phones and a lack of governance and leadership around digital health platforms. And of course, um, after all the digital hype, so to say, I mean, 
a good doctor-patient relationship, a physical doctor-patient relationship is difficult to replace by digital health um, platforms only. So, and, and just to close and coming back, what I promised that I will um, also talk about uh, COVID-19 and digital health platforms. So outbreak monitoring and disease surveillance through digital health platforms will is and will remain most important, especially in the One Health context, human, animal, and environmental health. And um, DHS2 has actually reacted very quickly by launching um, a WHO-approved app of COVID-19 through the DHIS2 system, um, it was initiated by Sri Lanka and it has spread to many other countries so far. So at the moment, uh, over 25 countries have actually uh, employed the app of COVID-19 for case surveillance and beyond. I love Andrea's concept there of One Health, the health of human, animal and environment together. Yeah, definitely. And the growing uptake of these advanced technologies is certainly apparent in a number of countries. For instance, Sri Lanka, which is where our next guest IAB member, Professor Vajira Disanayaka, is based. Professor Disanayaka discusses the increasing uptake of genetic sequencing technologies in Sri Lanka and also the issue of bias in genomic data sets. He is the chair and senior professor of anatomy director of the Human Genetics Unit and chairperson of the specialty board in biomedical informatics at the University of Colombo, Sri Lanka. You have long-standing interests in both genetics and biomedical informatics. What advances have you seen in personalised and genomic medicine in recent years, particularly in Sri Lanka? Yes, um, so what I have seen is that, uh, you know, increasingly, uh, there is the need for integration of genetics and genomics into mainstream medicine. Uh, that was not the case five or ten years ago, even um, the clinicians were not uh, that inclined, but now they realize the um, importance of doing that. And as a result of that, even in our setting, um, uh, sequencing um, individuals to find answers to undiagnosed disorders uh, is becoming important. And at the same time, well, precision medicine as it is in terms of looking at the genetic uh, variants in uh, tumors so that you could uh, potentially tailor make the chemotherapies is also coming into force. So therefore, like, uh, you know, uh, Sri Lanka is uh, just became a upper middle income country recently. Uh, but uh, as we are, I guess, as we are making that transition, um, the uh, fact that uh, these technologies, which were seen as uh, those of the uh, higher income countries, uh, they are also becoming important in our setting as well. And the practice of medicine, uh, when it comes to the ground realities, is that it's no different than unless uh, you really integrate uh, the, these technologies, uh, then uh, you cannot bring benefits uh, to your patients. And, and you cannot also um, deliver healthcare in a cost-effective way. So the um, changes that are happening in the West are getting uh, integrated um, 
to our settings as well. Although slightly uh, at a um, lesser pace as it were, but it would, um, I think, gather uh, pace uh, as we go on. Uh, and uh, within the next five years, I see tremendous changes happening, uh, even in our setting in Sri Lanka, uh, where uh, genetics and genomics would be uh, really uh, playing a center role in uh, practice of clinical medicine. Mm, that's really insightful. So if we talk about data per se, we know that bias in data sets is a significant problem, particularly in genomic data. In your experience, is this changing? And if so, how? The biases continue still, and um, there is underrepresentation of uh, populations that are research naive. So even the Sri Lankan population, I would consider as a research naive population because we've not been a part of the global uh, you know, genetics and genomics research enterprise, as it were. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, the, what we really found um, about five years ago when we started uh, you know, doing our own uh, uh, clinical exome and exome sequencing, doing our own bioinformatics analysis uh, and so on, was that um, we were encountering a lot of uh, novel variants um, and uh, what the background frequencies of those variants in the population, uh, whether they were pathogenic variants or what, or what were we going to call them. There were lots of issues uh, of that nature. And um, over the years, what has happened uh, in my own lab and uh, the work that we do is because we've, uh, uh, through the development of our own um, you know data set of what to, what variant frequencies are in our population we are now becoming more and more confident in uh, calling uh, uh, these variants and um, in fact uh, each time we sequence an exome we would uh, uh, find that uh, we have about five to ten percent of novel variants in that exome so um, uh, the the biases are becoming less but i think uh, what genetics and genomics um, you know tells us is that uh, it cannot really depend on uh, you know the discoveries made um, uh, they are out there in the west anymore we've got to uh, start doing our own work here building our own knowledge based uh, database of background genetic variants and also in some shape and form getting these variants into um, the clinical decision making process to, um, uh, into um, into patient records and uh, electronic health records. Going further from that, we need to bring in some amount of machine learning, artificial intelligence uh, to start interpreting this data. So, um, yes, um, the biases, I guess, are uh, becoming uh, less and less, but uh, that would only happen if at country level, uh, clinicians um, take the lead in integrating genomics into clinical medicine to electronic health records and then of course going the next uh, step of involving um, people who are who have the capability to analyze big data um, and also bring in uh, some more machine learning artificial intelligence to make sense of this data. Oh, it was great to hear from Vajira there really interesting to hear how an economic shift can bring with it increasing integration of clinical technologies into mainstream medicine 
which could support a positive change where bias in data sets is concerned. Next up, I had the opportunity to chat with Dr. Sherry Pagato, a clinical psychologist and social media researcher. She is currently a professor in the Department of Allied Health Sciences at the University of Connecticut and director of the Yukon Center for M Health and Social Media. She talks about the contributions social media data have made to clinical research and the need for clear guidelines and regulations to ensure ethical use of these data. So your research utilizes mobile technology and social media platforms to develop and deliver behavioral interventions that target a range of clinical problems. But in a broad sense, how do you think clinical research is benefiting from leveraging social media data? That is a great question. I, I think there are a number of ways social media can benefit clinical research. First, I would say social media can be an invaluable tool in recruiting for clinical studies. So uh, we use social media to advertise our clinical trials. For example, we'll use Facebook ads and also post in Facebook neighborhood groups across our nation. Um, and this has been a valuable tool in targeting specific communities around the country that are typically hard to reach. I live in one particular region of my country, but I often want to create a sample that's diverse and reflects the entire country, not just where the University of Connecticut is. And so using social media has been a really valuable tool for that. And I think it's really underutilized in clinical trials research. So right now during the pandemic, we're seeing social media use go up by about 50%. So there's a huge opportunity um, to recruit and do research really fast with social media. A second use of social media that we've been doing a lot in my lab is using it to create online patient communities around self-management for chronic conditions. So for example, we create private Facebook groups to connect patients who have a shared condition of some sort. We have some studies on weight management, um, studies of mothers who have children with type one diabetes and other studies for melanoma survivors and their family members. And we create these communities to get patients um, some guidance on how to manage their condition, um, evidence-based information and health messaging, and also to connect them with each other so that they can benefit from peer-to-peer -peer support. A lot of people who are struggling with chronic conditions don't know other people who have those chronic conditions, and so we have an opportunity to connect them so that they can support each other while also getting really um, solid evidence-based guidance on how to manage their condition. And so there are lots of online patient communities out there that have started organically by patients, for patients. And so we've sort of created a space for ourselves to study how it goes if we create our own online patient communities and are able to be really proactive in teaching them how to manage a condition. And so we're seeing some really good results with that. It's also very convenient for people. They're already on social media. It's a way to get this content into the feed that they're looking at multiple times a day as it is. So it's just been a strategy to get this type of information around preventive care to them that has been very difficult, particularly here in the US, to get to patients. That's really interesting, the idea of using these online platforms as a way of bringing different patient communities together. So a point that's commonly yeah. brought up when discussing social media data um, is the ethical use of that data. For instance, 
considering things like patient privacy. What guidelines are required to ensure the ethical use of patients or research participants' social media data? And what can the various stakeholders do to support this? This is a really important question because a major problem right now with social media research is that we do not have clear guidelines on ethical use. And for this reason, even the most well-intentioned researchers may be at risk for making ethical violations. So social media platforms are constantly evolving. Their use and privacy policies are constantly evolving. And these are the sorts of things that researchers who are using social media platforms really need to stay on top of. We're seeing that even institutional review boards are not always equipped to adequately review social media studies. And so the review that a lot of studies are getting may not necessarily be catching possible ethical violations. So I really think that the scientific community needs to establish some conventions around this, even our federal regulations don't address the uniqueness of social media data. It's important to bring tech ethicists into this conversation. And I think this really is going to necessitate IRBs, federal funding agencies, and social media platforms to get together and think about the ethical use of social media data in research. And my biggest concern is that if we don't move forward more quickly on this is we do risk some ethical breaches, another Cambridge Analytica, but also breaches that are just a result of mere ignorance. And at the end of the day, we could risk losing the public's trust, which might make it very difficult to use social media data. And it's a very rich source of data in research. There's so much that we can learn from it. If platforms become hesitant to allow researchers access, there will be a big opportunity loss there because the platforms will always have access to their data. But to the extent that outsiders can get access to that data and answer important questions could be at risk if we don't think more carefully about ethical guidelines. Our key point was raised here that any data, but critically social media data for clinical research, must be shared and used securely without any risk of breaching the privacy and most importantly, the trust of the public. Our final guest is Professor Rand Balliser. He also discussed what guidelines need to be in place to securely use patient data and also how to strike a balance between patient data privacy and maximize the use of population data to foster implementing data-driven innovative tools. Professor Rand Balliser is Chief Innovation Officer at Clalit in Israel. He also serves as Founding Director of the Clalit Research Institute the WHO Collaborating Center on Non-Communicable Diseases Research, Prevention and Control. And he is also a public health professor at the Ben Gurion University in Israel. Israel was one of the first countries to invest significantly in digital technology in healthcare. And as director of Israel's largest healthcare organization, you perhaps have greater insight in how we can use patient data for public health benefit, for example, in the current pandemic. However, there is the very important issue of privacy to contend with. Is it possible to securely use patient data for public health benefit? So, there, I think there is no better time to discuss the issue of using um, personal health records data and, and personal data uh, in specific uh, to promote public health than the current pandemic. I'll take one example for what we've done here at Clalit. 
um, very early on at the beginning of the dissemination of COVID-19, we understood that we have to warn our patients that are at highest risk to develop complications. We have created a predictive model um, that was based both on previous work we've done on predicting flu complications among elderly patients, as well as data that was accumulated from elsewhere around the world about the risk of having a severe disease. And we created the predictive model, used it on all of our four and a half million uh, population at Khalid, and targeted the highest risk 200,000 people. And we've provided them, those specific people, that if they catch COVID-19, they will have the highest risk of complications. We gave them specific recommendations to stay home and not leave home at this time. We have given them dedicated efforts on, um, on having uh, a personalized uh, online care and their, their physician um, has called them and urged them both to stay home and to call him if they have any specific needs. And indeed, we see that there was a very good um, uh, level of, of adherence to our rules in this group. And we have probably prevented many, many uh, cases of, of contracting disease and complication through this data. Now, we do all of this in-house within our servers with very strong cybersecurity and we are making sure that our patients are receiving the best care that they can based on this data, but without really challenging um, their, their privacy and, and the ability of anyone else getting access to this data. That's fascinating. So what would you recommend for other countries who want to um, employ this sort of technology for the benefit of, of mitigating this, the current situation? I think the most important thing is to really uh, delineate the key needs uh, that would be solved by data-driven products. The need to identify patients at risk is one. They need to identify patients at higher likelihood of getting infected is another, which is something that we're currently tackling. Um, the need to provide uh, understanding about regional, spatial, temporal dissemination is, is, is a third. And once you define these, you can find a way through the data that you have available and that that you will um, collect that you can uh, uh, get more insights into it. Let me give you another example. Uh, in order to understand where the disease is disseminating, we have begun uh, sending out questionnaires to all of our members, urging them by SMS, urging them to fill um, um, symptom survey on a daily basis. And based on the symptom survey, we can understand in which areas of the country we have a bigger issues of impending uh, surge of illness. And we're doing this work with, with uh, our friends, uh, both at the uh, Weizmann Institute and the Ministry of Health. And, and through these surveys, I think we, we can make uh, a real um, difference in targeting the right areas um, to prevent further disease dissemination. Thank you so much, Ran. Um, I just wanted to change tack a little bit. Your role involves developing interventions for improving healthcare quality and reducing disparities. You've um, previously mentioned the significant issue of bias in AI clinical implementation. Can you tell us a bit about these challenges and the current research towards developing solutions to this problem? We are on a daily basis using AI modules uh, for better treatment of our population. And what we have seen through this uh, um, massive at scale uh, um, implementation is that some of our models suffer from biases. Some of these biases are because of biases embedded in our data, but some others are out of statistical um, problems that are associated with minority groups that are, um, are miscalibrated. We have created uh, specific um, tools 
statistical tools uh, with friends at the Weizmann Institute to uh, be able to tackle uh, these, these biases that come from the statistics. And, and we have been able to recalibrate our uh, models so that they, the bias of minority groups is st very significantly diminished. And we use this now on all of our models and we see a lot of benefit from that. Fantastic. So there have clearly been a number of key highlights in the field of digital health this past year, such as uniting multidisciplinary groups in an effort to fight the current coronavirus pandemic, greater accessibility of health information in sub-Saharan Africa, better integration of genetic sequencing technologies in Sri Lanka, and the development of social media groups to support different patient communities. However, there are obviously a number of obstacles that still need to be overcome, such as limited technological access for underserved populations, limited representation of minority groups within data sets, ethical breaches of patient data, and more openness and collaboration, particularly in times of crisis. With that, I'd like to thank you so much for listening to the podcast and staying with us till the end. And please do look at our issue this month and our birthday editorial. Thank you so much and please keep safe and well. <laughs>